Good morning. Uh, it's always good to be sharing with you. Um, certainly glad that we can still uh, gather on Sunday mornings, that we're not doing it uh, uh, virtually. I think I would still prefer to be doing this uh, this way and not uh, on a Zoom call or something if I could uh, help it, at least in the, in the live setting. Um, so I just wanted to start by telling you, I, I read an article a few weeks ago called Stop Keeping Score, and it was a critique of the idea that um, we need to have the most experiences and adventures and achieve them as much success as we can in order to be happy. And uh, it was a critique of the idea that she who dies with the most checked boxes wins. And the author of this article said, uh, if you Google 30 things to do before you turn 30, you will get more than 15,000 results. And I looked, you do. Uh, there are lots of people out there who are willing to tell you what you need to achieve by a certain age in order to be happy. And these things range from the obvious, so things like traveling and seeing the world, uh, to the ambitious, starting a business, learning another language, or running a marathon, uh, to the completely bizarre. Uh, one person suggested uh, try to disarm a bomb with one second to spare. And uh, my advice, if that's something you're going to go after, do it last. <laughs> but, but, the, uh, but the worst one I found might be the one thing you absolutely must do before you turn 30 is make a list of 40 things to do before you turn 40. And I can just imagine how that one progresses from one decade to the next. It doesn't end well. And his argument is that it's okay to set goals and have ambitions, but these aren't the things that drive happiness. He says the more meaning thing, meaningful things to pursue are developing virtues like compassion and honesty, focusing on the needs of others, and finding your life's purpose. And that's all good, and I would probably agree with most or all of what he's saying. But today I want to take a look at the Bible's directions for happiness. And not superficial, temporary happiness, but deep, fulfilling, and enduring happiness. So to find that, we'll turn to the first psalm. And this chapter, the opening psalm in the book of Psalms, has been called the Psalm of Psalms by some commentators. Right at the beginning of the book of Psalms, it introduces several key themes that are found throughout the rest of the book of Psalms and through the entire Bible. And it's written as a series of contrasting ideas, which we'll see as we start to go through it. And just for fun, I'll throw this in. This psalm was one of my earliest experiences in memorizing scripture. It was a youth group challenge to see who could memorize it first. So I memorized it, and then I thought I could race everybody else if instead of waiting until Wednesday at the next youth group meeting, I went to Daryl's house sometime through the week. Uh, but this was a long time ago, so I had to go on my bicycle. And I was almost there, but just before I got there, I got caught in a sudden downpour. The rain just came out of nowhere. So I got to Daryl's house, unannounced, soaking wet, and recited my memory verses. And then he drove me home. And we're actually doing a memory verse uh, challenge in the youth group right now. Every week, anyone who knows their memory verse gets their name in a draw for a 12-month subscription to Disney+. Plus. You know what I got for my memory verses? Wet. <laughs> Kids these days. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's read Psalm 1 together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. 
and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So before we go on, let's just, uh, let's just pray again. Uh, God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this day that you have given us. And we thank you for your word. Just ask that you would prepare our ears to hear and our hearts to receive what you would say to your people this morning. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just going to walk all the way through this very short chapter and look at some of the truths that it contains. We'll just start in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So we can see three things that a blessed person does not do. Um, and each of those three contains a verb, your action word, and a place or a state. So we have counsel of the ungodly, path of sinners, seat of scornful. And in each one of those, walks, stands, sits. So this can be read as a picture of the progressive nature of sin and how once it ensnares a person, it takes a stronger and stronger hold. So it begins with counsel, or today we would likely use the word advice. And in this case, it would be bad advice. So really, someone has just offered you their perspective on life, righteousness, religion, morality, whatever. I remember I heard somebody say one time, I really don't think Jesus would care one way or the other on some particular issue. Or someone told me once, the world changed. We have to change along with it. And that sounds really good. It's completely wrong. Uh, Romans 12.2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But at that point, it's simply advice. And we are bombarded with um, all sorts of ideas all day long through conversation, what we read, what we see on TV, and on social media in particular, uh, mostly because social media gives a voice and a platform to more people than ever would have had one before, and it has the possibility of spreading further and faster than it ever did before, the phenomenon we call going viral. And we can take steps to insulate ourselves from ungodly influence by asking, what channels do we watch? What apps do we download? What do we subscribe to? What company do we keep and who do we allow to speak into our lives and influence us? But it would be almost impossible to avoid all ungodly counsel. And that advice or that counsel can ensnare us if we aren't diligent about recognizing it and discerning it. So walking in ungodly counsel can lead to the second place uh, called the path of sinners or the way of sinners. And when that happens, we find ourselves in a place that we should not be. If we act on that counsel, Consideration turns into participation. We're no longer simply entertaining ideas, but we're now acting them out. and We're specifically breaking God's laws, violating his commandments. And remember that there is a progression happening here. The Hebrew word for stand is where we get the English words column and statue, which implies there can be a strong fixation in that place. Um, or we can get stuck in that place or develop a stubbornness to change direction. That's when sin becomes habit or it becomes automatic. And the end of the progression is the seed of the scornful. This is when the heart becomes um, hard, when you start making light of sin or when you're openly rebelling against God. One interpretation of the word seat is um, like an invitation. The temptation is complete and it's as though your friends declare you're one of us now and they have offered you a seat at their table. Proverbs 4.14 says, Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of evil, 
Avoid it, do not travel on it, turn away from it, and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil, and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. There are people out there who make it their mission to pull people into their sin with them. And the other interpretation is that seat refers to the seat of instruction. And that's an idea that comes from Bible times. Uh, Back then when scriptures were taught, it was actually the audience who was standing and the preacher who was sitting. Uh, So someone in the seat of the scornful might offer their own counsel or their own teachings, something like, adopt my way of thinking and living. Don't trouble yourself with praying or Bible reading or repentance or any of that. Just live a good and honest life. Don't worry about religion. As long as you don't kill anyone, you'll be okay. And I think we need to remember that uh, people still look up to us. People look up to me, especially our young people. If I model sin, I will be imitated. And it's almost like I'm giving implicit permission uh, for somebody to uh, do the same things that I do, even if I'm not actively tempting them. Once I'm on the seat of the scornful, I'm no longer the influenced. I'm now the influencer. And my openness to sin creates my example, whether I mean it to or not. And this progression that we see in the first verse is worth very careful consideration. I once heard it put like this, decline starts with recline. Nobody just wakes up one day and decides to go do a break and enter or rob a bank or whatever. But it might start much more subtly. The thought might be, I'm not going to church today. I need a break. I need to sleep in. I need to relax. And that's not meant to be religious about going to church or anything like that. But we need to examine what's the underlying motivation? What's going on in the heart? Is relaxation becoming an idol? Are other things on the schedule taking precedence? And it's worth asking, is there any gradual wearing away of the things that keep us out of the way that we shouldn't go? And we're told that the the blessed is the man who doesn't do these things. We're blessed when we don't get caught up in every idea that comes our way, when we don't set foot on a path of sin and wrongdoing, and when we don't allow ourselves to get to a state where our heart has become so hard, we make a mockery of the things of God. But who among us hasn't found themselves somewhere in that description? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. So if we're blessed and we don't do these things and no one is righteous and we've all found ourselves here in this situation, who then is blessed? And we'll look at three other places in the Psalms and we'll get a better picture of the answer to that question. In Psalm 34, it says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And in chapter 65, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. And in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So that we, what we see is that we're not blessed because we never sinned. Um, and it's not because we've never messed up. We're blessed because of our relationship with God. We don't find blessedness in things that we don't do, but rather we're blessed when we take refuge in him, when we trust that he's in control, when we trust that he reigns, when we trust that he has a plan for our good and that he's working that plan out. We're blessed when we're satisfied with his goodness and when we live close to him, when we walk with him. And we find one more source of blessedness in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So whoever wrote this psalm didn't go on to say just the opposite. 
blessed is the man who uh, walks in the counsel of the godly or um, stays off of the path of sinners, anything like that. He says blessedness comes from delighting in the right thing. And he says that's delighting in the law. And if we take a closer look at the word law, we'll find much more than just a list of rules and do's and don'ts and thou shalls and thou shall nots. In Hebrew, the word for law is Torah, and that comes from the Hebrew word yara, which means to teach or to instruct. Some translations do actually render that word as instruction, like the Amplified Bible. First two reads like this. But his delight and desire are in the law of the Lord, the precepts, the instructions, the teachings of God. So the law contains more than rules to follow and commandments to obey. And that's not to say those things aren't important or they aren't relevant. But the law tells us who God is, tells us what he is like and how he works. And in it, he gives us his own wise counsel for how we should live. The blessed man walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but he takes wiser counsel and wiser guidance from God. And it says that he delights in the law of the Lord. And that word means to find extreme joy or satisfaction in something. It goes much further beyond just performing an action or fulfilling uh, your duty or your responsibility. I'll paraphrase what John Piper said about delighting in the law. He said, when you delight in something, you honor it, you magnify it, you glorify it more than if you dutifully comply with it. If you dutifully do something, but you'd rather be doing something else the whole time, you show that you've got some willpower. But if you devour it because you find it so satisfying, you say a lot more about the value of it, and you show it to be precious and a real treasure to you. The blessed man's delight is in everything God says. When God opens his mouth, he, the blessed man, gets happy. He says, I love to hear the voice of God, whether he is commanding or whether he is promising or whether he is describing or whether he is guiding. I love to hear, I delight to hear God instruct me. So does God speak today? Yes, I believe he does. And one of the ways he does it is through his word. He wrote this. He wrote the Bible to you and to me. And what a wonder and a joy it is that God would speak to any of us. Are you glad for the word of God? Are you thankful for the word of God? You can clap for that. I need a quick break. <laughs> and finally, we see that this man meditates on the law day and night. Um, he doesn't meditate on the counsel and instruction of the unrighteous, but rather on the counsel and instruction of God. So we should ask, what exactly is meant by meditation? It comes from a Hebrew word, haga, that means to murmur or to repeat quietly. And it implies, uh, it implies thinking and speaking words to yourself over and over again. And to the original audience that the psalm was written to, it would have involved memorization. A very few people would have had a written copy of the Bible, at least what part existed back then. So even if you could read, you probably didn't have a copy, so your only exposure to it was hearing it read out loud. And the only way you could meditate on it would be to recall it from your memory. And this has very practical implications for us today. Psalm 119.11 says that we should hide or store God's word in our hearts. Matthew Henry said this, We must have the word of God in our thoughts, Upon every occasion that occurs, whether night or day, no time is amiss for meditating on it, nor is any time unseasonable. We must not only set ourselves to meditate on God's word morning and evening, at the entrance of the day and of the night,
that these thoughts should be interwoven with the business of every day and with the slumbers of every night. So this meditation really is a continual and ongoing process, and we should allow it to permeate every aspect of life. Deuteronomy 6.6 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So when we read this, we can and should take it literally. We're not told to merely read the Bible or study it. We're told to delight in it. We should find joy in it and savor what it contains regularly and continually. We should bring it into every action and every interaction we have. and We should let it guide how we go about our day and conduct our business. So now we look at the end result of this process, this delighting and meditating on the law. In verse 3 it says, That man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So why this comparison to a tree? Uh, the first reason is because trees are sturdy. As I was preparing this, I was uh, looking at a tree, and I realized that the trunk has to support not only its own weight, plus the weight of all the branches, uh, most of which are very high off the ground. I did a little research, and I found out that a 50-foot pine tree with a 12-inch diameter, so about that big, can weigh as much as 2,000 pounds. And an 80-foot hardwood with a 24-inch diameter can weigh as much as 20,000 pounds. And even with all that weight, they can remain standing, even in high winds. And when a tree does fall down or it's cut down, we can see the root system under the surface. The roots of a big tree extend deep into the ground and far away from the trunk. And the roots act as both anchor and source. They hold the tree firmly in place, and they draw water and nutrients into the tree. So when we read that the tree is planted by streams of water, we see a picture of the tree's roots being sent down deep into the ground where they absorb water day and night. Psalm 46.4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And in Isaiah 58 it says, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So when we meditate on the law, it's like sending roots down into a water supply that's steady and reliable. It doesn't come and go. It doesn't turn into a trickle. It's always plentiful. And it says streams. It says rivers, plural, more than one. So if one were to somehow dry up, and it won't, um, but if it did, there are more where that came from. So it's not just enough. It's an abundance. And it says that the tree produces fruit in its season. In Galatians 5.22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Most of us are familiar with that, the fruits of the Spirit. These are the good things that are produced in the Christian's life. But in verse 3, it also says that the fruit is produced in its season. Because in some seasons, you need one fruit more than you need another one. So let's just take joy as an example. On good days or in good seasons, joy just kind of comes naturally. In other seasons, we don't always feel joyful, but there still remains an underlying joy that doesn't depend on circumstances. It's joy that comes from a complete trust in God and a total confidence in his promises. That's real joy. That's joy that the world can't give, and it's especially joy that the world can't snatch away from you. And there are other seasons where we need a particular fruit. In a season of 
affliction. We need the fruit of patience. In the season of temptation, we need the fruit of leaning on God. The Bible says God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. In the season of betrayal or offense, the fruit of forgiveness. The Bible says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In a season of prosperity, we need the fruit of gratitude. The Bible is what points us to the fruit we need in every circumstance. It contains the songs that we sing in seasons of rejoicing, like where we read, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But it also contains the promises that we're comforted by in dark times, like where it says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And finally, in verse 3, what does it mean that the leaf does not wither. Consider this picture. We see two trees in the same climate. Ah, There they are. A hot, dry desert. One is completely dried out. The other one is fully green. Same circumstances on the outside, same drought conditions on the surface, but only one of them has roots pushing down deep into the water. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. He describes seed that fell on rocky ground where the soil was shallow. It actually grew quickly, but its roots had no depth. So when the sun came up, it withered. Only the seeds in good soil, the ones that could grow strong roots deep in the ground, actually flourished and bore fruit. And while I was preparing this, I did some reading about other plants that can survive in a desert climate, like a cactus. There are some species of cactus that can hold over a ton of water, and they have several defense mechanisms that protect them from evaporation. But the most fascinating thing I discovered is that when it rains, and in some deserts that's once or twice a year, um, they can grow a temporary root system in under two hours uh, that spread through the nearby ground and soak up whatever moisture they can find. And I think that's pretty cool, but it isn't a good picture of a blessed life. Uh, the cactus, the cactus's life is one of withstanding, enduring, and when the rain comes, grab as much as you can and hunker down again. But the blessed life is one of thriving, not surviving. It's green and flourishing on the outside and firmly planted in a stream on the inside. Now, the last time I shared back in September, I said we can't store up a supply of prayer for later use. And likewise, we can't expect a meager diet of Bible reading and meditation to sustain us for weeks and months at a time. We need to be in the Word and meditating on it regularly if we're uh, to be continually fed by that stream. So when we read about a tree, we should think of something that is firm and steady and not easily moved. The person who meditates in law is someone who is not easily shaken by adversity, who's not easily deceived by temptation, and is supplied by a source that is faithful and reliable. Now if we move on to verse 4, the author of this psalm contrasts this tree with chaff, it says, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Chaff is a byproduct of wheat production. When the wheat's ready for harvest, it is cut down and then it's threshed. So basically, it's just all smashed up. Today, it's done by machines, but in the past and in some remote parts of the world today, it's still done by hand. And somebody just strikes it again and again with a long stick or a device called a flail. We might have that up there. There it is. We can see that very well. But that's what the two on the left are doing. They've got a big pile of wheat on the ground, and they've got these great big sticks, and they're just hitting it repeatedly. That breaks the outer husk off and releases the little grain on the inside. 
And then the person on the far right is doing what's called winnowing. So when the threshing is done, um, you need to separate the grains from the husks and the rest of the stalks. And the simplest way to do it is what she's doing in that, in that picture. She just takes a handful of it, throws it in the air while the wind is blowing. The light chaff all blows away and the heavy grains fall straight to the ground. And um, I'll just mention in the book of Judges, Gideon's story begins with him threshing grain in a wine press. So it'd be like a, a well or a small pit. And it's not a good place to be threshing your grain because there's no wind to blow the chaff away and there's nowhere for it to go. So why the comparison between the tree and the chaff? The tree produces fruit. Chaff has no value at all. You can't eat it. You can't sell it. There's no nutritional value. Uh, it has no value whatsoever. The tree is sturdy and not easily moved. Chaff is weightless and it gets pushed around by the lightest breeze. Remember what we read at the beginning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And that first step into a way that leads to destruction is heeding ungodly counsel. We need to be discerning and we need to be convinced of the truth or else we'll be blown away by every wind and temptation and new idea that comes along. And how are we convinced of the truth? By meditating on the law day and night. And verse three concludes with, in all that he does, he prospers. And this can be difficult to accept because it can seem so inconsistent with our experience. Personally, I have had plenty of experiences and endeavors that I would not describe as prosperous. I might use a word like uh, disaster or train wreck or dumpster fire, a personal favorite of mine. And it would seem, it would seem very f fair. I think we would, uh, we would sympathize with anybody who said, uh, you know, my business failed, my relationship failed, my marriage failed. I prayed, I prayed for healing that never came. I prayed for protection and I was harmed anyway. So no, everything I do certainly does not prosper. And the Bible seems to offer some support for this position. In Psalm 44, it says, yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And worse, the Bible even says that it's the ungodly who prosper. In Psalm 37, it says, don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. And in Malachi 3, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So what are we to do with this? Is it hard to believe that everything you do prospers? Does the Bible have it wrong, or maybe it's just nice poetry or a nice sentiment? Uh, Romans 8.28 might be the best place to start to help us understand this and put it together. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If we consider the life of Joseph, uh, which I won't go into today, um, he went through an entire lifetime of betrayals. And I had a quick look through the story, and everything in his life was betrayal. There were no accidents or mishaps. There were no natural disasters. It was all just other people being awful to him. But at the end, did Joseph declare that his life was a train wreck? Or that, well, all's well that ends well? No, he said God meant all of it for good. God worked all of it for good. His verdict at the end was goodness. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what does it mean if your labor is not in vain? 
it means that something will come of it. And in Luke 14, 13, Jesus said, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So the feast that he's describing on the surface does not look like prosperity. You are giving to people who specifically cannot pay you back. You are the one who loses. But God promises that that good work will not be a loss and that there is some future reward that won't be seen in this life. And there's also the futility of worldly pursuits, something that I touched on at the very beginning. Uh, we can chase after so many things, wealth and status and Twitter followers and TikTok followers and Instagram followers and so on. But Jesus asks, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? And he told the story of a man who had so much wealth, all he could think to do with it was to build bigger barns to store it all. But he died. So in the end, what was it all for? If we asked him, do you think he would say he prospered? Probably not, because he lost everything in an instant. And even if the story didn't end with his death, those barns could have collapsed or burned down or been raided by bandits, and he would have lost it all anyway in one day. But when we store up a treasure in heaven, we store something that lasts. We store something of enduring value, and in the end, nothing will have been in vain. Martin Luther said, this prosperity is hidden prosperity and lies entirely secret in spirit. So we might not see it immediately, and it might not look like what we expect. Uh, we might never know what God did through it, but we do have his promise. Whatever he does shall prosper, and none of it will be for nothing. And there's one final contrast that we see in the closing of this psalm. Therefore, the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We've already looked at several contrasts between the righteous and the ungodly. Each has their own source. Um, they each have their own fruitlessness or fruitfulness, fruitfulness or fruitlessness. Uh, each has a distinct way. And now we see that each way also has a distinct destiny. And the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Psalm 37, 23 says, the steps of a man are established, or some translations say the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. So we won't always know why that path goes the way it does. Uh, we won't know, uh, you know why we go through certain things. But what we do know is that every step is planned by God well in advance. Charles Spurgeon said he is constantly looking on their way, and though it may be often in mist and darkness, yet the Lord knows it. We have a promise that God orders every step, he guides every step, and those who follow that path walk in prosperity and their end is eternal life. But the contrast also serves as a warning. There's another way for those who would reject God or who treat his law with contempt. And their way might seem to prosper for a while, but its end is ruin. Those who reject God end up separated from him permanently, a place called hell. And the image of chaff being driven away isn't just someone who would follow unwise counsel or give in to temptation. And it's not just worldly pursuits that end up having no lasting value, but it's also a picture of the threshing floor being swept clean of anything and anyone who is found not worthy. Those who reject God will not stand in the judgment. They will be found guilty and there will be no defense. 
So where do you see yourself in all this? In the psalm, we see a promise of life that is steady and fruitful. And in times like these, uh, when, time, when things just seem so unpredictable, all of us could probably use a little more steadiness and a little more fruitfulness. And so if you feel like that's something you need, ask yourself, am I meditating on the law? Am I meditating on the Bible? Is it a joyful experience? Am I soaking it in? Am I bringing it to remembrance? Or am I just going through the motions? If that's you, ask God to help you. Ask him to make his word come alive for you. Ask him to help you find and stand on the promises that he makes to you, to show you his goodness and to give you hope and assurance. Or maybe you're not sure you're on the right path. You've been looking for God. You've been hiding from God. Maybe you've been running from God. If you want the life that God has for you, the good news is that he has made a way to get on that way. Jesus himself said, I am the way. Let's read Psalm 32 again. We read this once earlier. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. When Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago, he took the punishment that we all deserved on himself. And three days later, he came back to life. And in doing so, now no matter what you've done or no matter how badly you've messed up, God offers you complete forgiveness. And all you have to do is ask. Maybe we can all just bow our heads here for a moment. So if that sounds like you, if you say, yes, I have, I have messed up, or yes, I am, I am on the wrong way, you can ask him right now. Just say something like this. Jesus, I know I have sinned. I know I have a, I've broken your laws, but I want the life you have for me, a life built on your word and your promises, a life that truly prospers. I ask you to forgive my sins, and today I choose to follow you. Help me to live for you and to find my delight in you. Amen.